Hey guys, what's up? It's Zemet here with Cartel Aristocrats Finance Cast number 43. I'm joined this week as always by my co-casters, T. Ravis Allen, back from his one-week break, Ed Wynn of Kerwin's Gaming, and Jim Casali of Casali Productions. We got a lot to talk about this week, including how bad Modern Masters 2017 is, so we might as well get started. Um, anyone want to start off with your thoughts on the booster packaging and all three cards that have been spoiled so far? It's amazing. Modern's the best format in Magic. Uh, I was pretty sure Gristlebrand was going to be the other Black Mythic, but I'm kind of surprised that they decided to spoil the cards in the order that they did. What's the other other Black Mythic? Probably Liliana of the Veil. Mm. Like, they're going to do two Planeswalkers, and I assumed Liliana was one, and I thought Tamiya was going to be the other. But if they're doing like this weird thing, like they probably want to put at least one mythic from each of the six sets that are being added into Modern Masters, which would mean that Domri is probably like the least crappy thing that they could put in from Gate Crash. And they didn't want to just go ham on the Averson Restored Mythics because those are like really the only ones that anyone wants. Man, I am going to be so annoyed if Liliana the Veil is not in the set because I sold all of mine and that would be a bummer. How hard would it have been to reprint Arcana Revenant and Obliterator in this set? Like, come on, guys. I mean, they could have, but, like, modern players are being mad because they're already mad at Stoic Angel is in the set, and it's a rare, and it literally doesn't matter at all. They're like, oh, I have to open this bulk rare in my booster pack that cost me $10. And I was like, well, have you opened any other master sets? You always get bulk rares that are worth nothing in their $10 booster packs. Yeah. Like, at least this one, somebody wants it because it's, you know, it's a, like, casual card. Besides Molten Destruction, I can't think of any other bulkers in Modern Masters 1. Dragonstorm, but I think that actually has a buy list on it. Well, at the time, they were bulk rares, right? Or, like, they cratered the prices. Yeah, they cratered the prices. I'll give you that. I don't know. I mean, seeing Damirod is not exciting, uh, but I don't think it's the worst, right? I guess, I mean, so what are there? There's 15 Mythics, right? If you do two from each color, you're at 10, which leaves you five floating slots, right? I guess for like, so I mean, you could do, you could toss in an extra black one. I don't think that's out of the question. And they could give another, they could give the other colors extra rare slots or something. Well, well it doesn't really work for drafts. Like you can't misbalance the colors at rare and mythic because of that. It's probably going to be two of each colored rare and then like two gold cards and three artifacts or something like that. Like the last couple of sets. I mean, you're right. They don't want to imbalance the draft, but I could see them doing three black rares, three black mythics, and giving every other color an extra rare. You know what I mean? And then, so, you know, yeah, right. Like, you just, it's not perfect, but. Yeah, they, I don't know. They have other holes to fill with this set than just draft. That's true. I suppose. But yours is a fair point. What do you think, Jeremy? You're the one that hates modern. Yeah, dude, modern sucks. Fuck this format. Like, There's we one. got 73 players for Legacy this weekend, and we probably would have had more if we didn't have a bunch of people cancel last minute because of unexpected events and for forego their entry fee. So it's not like they were just like, oh, yeah, no, we're not going to come. Can we have our money back? It's like they knew going in that it was not refundable and stuff came up. We're like, we, we literally lost four cars of people to stuff that was out of our control. Uh, we had a lot of people visit from like four or five hours away, which was insane. There was apparently people recording podcasts outside our shop and it like just got posted today. Like I was walking to my car to get more empty uh, five rows 
for buys because that's what I was doing. And I just see these two guys in their car with like mics and like they're all like leaned in in the front seat. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I didn't think of anything of it. And on Twitter today, someone was like, yo, we recorded our podcast for competitive tournaments outside your your shop. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but yeah, we have a legacy win a Black Lotus tournament coming up in two months. And we're already pretty full for that for our cap. So it's going to be fun. Um, do you guys think that art on the box of uh, MM3 is Towncaster Mage? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Like, I mean, I got, it's not confirmed, but like I agree. It's pretty clearly that's what that is. And yeah. how was uh, Vancouver? Like, Did anything change over the weekend with Modern? Nope. Vancouver is quite literally like the most uninteresting tournament I've been to in terms of what the vendors are doing, the vendors were there, the type of things that, uh, like any effects on price in terms of buy lists, selling, whatever. It's just kind of the usual suspect things. There was no real breakout deck that made huge swings in the market. So it was just a very typical Canadian Grand Prix. Do you guys see any price movement on much of the Death Shadow stuff? I mean, it feels like those prices are reasonably saturated at this point, but I was curious what it looks like from a vendor perspective. Uh, for the most part, like, we haven't had Death Shadows in stock for a long time. Like, whenever we buy them at Grand Prix, we put them online, they basically sell sell right away, which makes no difference to me, right? Fair market price is fair market price. The margins are the same. It doesn't matter if I bought it $3 and sold at $6 or bought it $10 and sold at, like, $16. I guess the margins are a little bit different there, but the, the idea is the same. Um, for the most part, the vendors, again, were pretty unimpressive. Just a mismatch of U.S. and Canadian vendors. Um, I left the tournament pretty early because I had to drive back uh, to Portland from Vancouver and trying to get across the border Sunday night is pretty miserable. So um, I, I left as soon as Top 8 was announced. My friend actually missed on Breakers, so I had no reason to stay. So if Dust Shadow settling went up during the Top 8 or towards the end of it, it's not something like I would have really noticed or been there to see. How does yeah. uh, customs play into vending international GPs? Because I know I have to declare a ton of stuff on the way back from my international flights. Uh, so I would never advocate anyone doing anything illegal. But to my understanding, a lot of people don't declare things when they cross international borders. Um, a non-zero number of vendors who travel internationally, they bring cards on them and... Uh, they basically, the verbiage you want to use is these are for personal use at this event. Um, you can't say you're there for business. You can't say that there's going to be any sort of transactions involved. All cards have to be de-sleeved. There can't be any prices on them because if they see that you have a $3,500 price tag on your Lotus or whatever, then it's going to be a little rough for you once they inquire about the other, you know, like 20,000 magic cards you have on you. Um, in terms of money, Usually it comes down to, hey, I know a guy, have that guy who I trust take care of the money. Um, that's basically what customs is like for international Grand Prix. What, wait, what does that mean? Do you, you mean you're having somebody else bring money across the border for you? You PayPal someone oh. and then they cash out for you or you wire to someone they cash out for you. Gotcha. Allegedly cash out for you. So many uh, little tricks of the trade that I would not be privy to otherwise. Yeah, for the most part, um, most places don't care. Um, it's just, 
you just have to say things correctly. Um, Japan is very versed to saying you're there for a card tournament because of gambling laws. Um, there are quite a few other places that are kind of in a similar boat. So you want to be careful what you say. Sounds a lot like uh, the magic rules. If you know what you're doing and you say the right things, then you can't get in. Well, not that you can get in trouble, but it's a lot harder to get in trouble. Yeah, there was uh, one of the biggest feedback things from our tournament was that there were zero instances of rules lawyering or feel bad judge calls. Everyone was just sort of playing for fun, even though there was a mox on the line, though I feel like for the Lotus tournament, it's going to be a little tighter because uh, people are saying that SEG people are going to be driving down. So, woohoo! I mean, Hoogland already came down once, but I highly doubt he'll play in a legacy tournament. My condolences. Yeah, no, he played in a modern <clears throat> tournament. He's not played in a legacy tournament down here, to the best of my knowledge. So I don't have to worry about him. Uh, I think Overturf and one other guy up there are coming down, so it'll be fun. Overturf is uh, Overturf is somehow connected to our little corner of the industry, isn't he? Yeah, he works for Lodestone Games as a buyer, okay. and he also works for Star City as a commentator. Yeah, I know it was a commentating, but I remember I felt like he did something with finance and I couldn't remember what. He yeah, writes man. for QS. Yeah. Or did. He does their daily updates on looking at MTG stocks and writing a paragraph about why he thinks it went up. It's the hardest job in the world. Being twenty twenty right, hindsight. He should uh he should think about writing doing it in a podcast once a week. <laughs> yeah. Wait, no, if you have a podcast that's like 15 seconds long and it has zero things that you haven't already learned, wouldn't that be called Fast Finance? You'd think. Long 15 seconds, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we also have, of course, besides Modern, uh, we have some interesting things going on outside of Modern. I mean, Standard is going to be Standard and prices are still going to continue to be depressed. One of the things that's been most interesting is the volume of Fatal Pushes that we're able to sell and the fact that that card has not really done much price-wise, like gone down that much. Uh, I don't know how it's looking from you on the tournament scene, Ed, but there was a non-zero amount of Fatal Pushes in our Legacy tournament, our Monday Modern stuff, and of course Standard. Uh, that card's becoming pretty ubiquitous lately. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think um, it's one of those cards where tournament player isn't the type of person that opens up packs for the sake of opening packs. Um, as such, it's a little hard to get fatal pushes. Um, I would just much rather go, hey, I need uh, four fatal pushes, here's $20. Um, rather than try and count on, hey, I need to draft them, I need to trade for them, whatever. Um, for the most part, like a high demand uncommon like that uh, is a type of card that people will just straight up buy. Um, and it's just so ubiquitous. Like you said, it's played Legacy. I saw no charge of it um, this weekend in Vancouver. Very popular modern card. Um, and it's one of the ways that it can actually kind of keep the prices on Aetherbolt sealed product up, uh, which is a little sad, but opening a Fatal Push is like the fifth best thing you can open Aetherbolt outside of Masterpieces. Um, so there has to be some value there. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that people will continue to open Aetherbolt. Um, and now that people are kind of getting to a point where people are slowly starting to not open Aether Revolt, I imagine that Fatal Pushes are going to get harder to get. Um, and the price will probably stay relatively constant, mainly just because as a store, it's just so hard to keep them in stock. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of it has to do with how standard is shaking up right now, where the number of creatures that you want to hit with your removal spells is pretty small because there's a very few decks in the format. Like, there's only three decks, and most of them are playing cards that cost two or less, and sometimes four or less, and being able to fatal push pretty much everything in the format is, like, pretty big game. Um, it's also, like, one of the few things that kills Heart of Kyrians profitably, I guess you could say. Uh, so it really, like, I don't think that this card's going to go down, even though I was hoping it was going to go down. Like, I thought it was going to go down. It was like, it can't be as $5 uncommon forever, but it's just too good in standard right now. The way that the meta is shaking up, people just need them all the time, and I don't think it's going to change probably until the next set comes out. Remember when you complained about the card being $5 and called people stupid for buying it? Yeah, I still think it's dumb for bu- you're dumb for buying it, but that's not the point. Yeah, personally, I think this card is going to always have its price pushed up a little. I mean, there's just so much demand cross-format, and the foils are moving pretty well, too, and this is coming from a place that doesn't even normally sell foils. So we all, like saw, a- we all saw that, right? Like, as soon as Jeremy started talking, you just knew the pun was coming. You are just waiting for it. Like, you could hear it in his voice. He gets that, like, kind of monotone, like, yeah, you know, because he's trying to sell it. Like, it's not actually there. Shout out to all the players who attended this week because I did a tournament or I did a pun every round before the before the round started as like an announcement. It was like, uh, hey, would you please tell um, the burn players to stop spilling things on our carpet? Because it seems like there's a lot of pyroclastic spillers today or uh, not even the name of the card. I'm yeah, so mad. Py- pyrostatic spiller. Or uh, there was a uh, John player who uh, got pizza spilled on him, but it was his abrupt decay didn't become an abrupt parfait. So yeah, fun times. I, not, I got they're I not real or good. Yeah, I didn't even get booed out of my own players meeting this time, which was really nice. That happened at the last one where it was too many puns. It was like eleven puns in a row in the players meeting. I think the problem is you had too many new people and they didn't know it enough well enough that you needed to go. Man. It was really nice to see some casual legacy players. Someone brought Pox playing Lanawar Wastes and Woodland Cemetery, and he did pretty well. And he played in the Pox mirror against a guy who had Tabernacle, Nether Void, and Chains. So I don't know the outcome that of that. Sounds like some fantastic magic, let me tell you. A Pox yeah. mirror match sounds phenomenal. That's got to be the pinnacle of magic. The spiciest. I think that's pack. only that's only like. Only slightly worse than like a lantern control mirror match. I think that might be the pinnacle of magic. Yeah, the spiciest uh, match was a Nick Fit Enchantress deck that was playing Doomwake Giant and Living Plane, whichever that thing is that turns all your lands into one ones. And then when you play that Doomwake Giant triggers and it kills all their lands instantly. That, and then he was playing against yeah, uh, people do that in EDH. It's not good. Yeah, he was playing against two card Monty which was also a pretty fun deck. Uh, I know Ben Perry loves it in Vintage. What's the two-card Monty combo? So Leyland of the Void, Rest in Peace, Painter's Servant, and Grindstone. Any combination. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. But yeah, Legacy's pretty diverse. We had 48 different decks at our tournament out of 73 players. And uh, we only had one repeating deck in the top eight, and they were technically playing different lists. It was just the same archetype but like the methods of winning the game are completely different. So yeah, it was fun. Good tournament. I don't doubt that you guys enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, if you ever get off your salt horse over there up in uh, 
New York, Travis, and come to play some Legacy at Vegas or something. I think you'll enjoy the format a lot. I used to play uh, Legacy. I enjoyed it. It's a cool format. I have never at any point in time said that I don't like the format or that it's not fun. It's never once been my position. But then why you sell out? Because it's not sustainable. First of all, I can't play Legacy here. There's no one that plays. The, the format is unsustainable, but that doesn't mean that it's not fun. Yeah. I don't know. I enjoyed it. Um, enough talk about Legacy because I know as much as I enjoy talking about it. I don't know if Ed does. Uh, I know he has vintage. Um, but I know a lot of our listeners are just modern uh, troglodytes who will eventually come out of their cave and discover other formats. Do you see the? Do you see the top sixteen between uh, or the top eights between Brisbane and uh, Vancouver? There was only uh, one there out of sixteen decks. There was fourteen unique ones. I think. Are we talking good format? Yeah, the good format. Okay, I disagree. Ooh, we have someone on the floor. Hit him with that inside information. Ed. So I think that the thing that people have to accept, which I don't think everyone has gotten to this point yet, is modern is good for casual players. Players that don't play 100% right all the time, and they just want to do their thing and get rewarded for doing their thing at a reasonable level of competency. And players that enjoy winning due to sheer skill don't necessarily get to enjoy those same kind of matches because that's just not how modern works. Well, I think there's some truth to that. I want to hear what Ed has to say. So from a player's perspective, I know I've said this before, I literally think modern is the worst format in Magic um, ever since its inception, like 20 plus years ago. Um, the biggest problem I have with it is the lack of interesting and meaningful decisions. Um, I know this is going to sound like a rant, but every time I see modern played, I basically see like just two people who are basically playing solitaire. Um, even with the control decks, like you have your your plan is slightly less linear, but there's just too many hyperlinear decks, not meaningful, interesting interactions, and like the cards just just like what you play doesn't really matter. You're basically just sitting down, just trying to like coin flip. And your coin flip either comes in, hey, did I dodge the matchup? Like, did I draw my sideboard cards? I just I, I just don't care for how the format plays out. Um, and even I see, like, a lot of people from all levels, like, I, I, just, I think people, like, agree. Uh, there's just a lot of non-games, and I think that happens more in modern than any other format, even Legacy or Vintage. Um, mainly because your interaction isn't there. You don't care what your opponent does. As a Fandy, I just vomit my hand out on the battlefield and hope that my seven or eight cards are enough to get me there. Uh, as Burn, I hope that my you know, my seven or eight cards are enough to do 21 damage to you or 18 damage or whatever. Like it, it's, just, it's just that type of gameplay that I just don't care for and I just don't find interesting. So, Well, I don't want to bog or cast down arguing about whether or not Modern's a good format because that's not what we're here for. But your points are at least worth considering. I don't know. Uh, I we don't have to dig into it today because I know I, people probably don't want to listen to you and I argue about whether modern is a good format. But I'm glad you told me what you thought. And personally, you can look at what modern has been through as a format back when like Pod was legal and all these other decks. You know, we can dig through time of any part of modern later. Um, but we do have some other stuff to talk about this week. Uh, so you guys want to get into the card sphere discussion? Yeah, Can I opt this? out? Is that an option? I think we got to talk about it. 
so for those who uh, listened to the cast last week, we talked about Puka Trade and Card Sphere uh, for a while. We talked about Card Sphere for less than a minute, and I said something wrong. Um, and we got into this fierce debate with uh, Tom Reese, who's one of the guys on. Uh, is my mic bo- is my mic on? Is it still gone? No, you're good. I was fine. Okay. That was weird. I just kind of zonked out for a minute. Maybe it was yeah. Uh, so we talked to Tom Reese, who's helping to create uh, cards here, which is like Puka Trade, except it's backed by an actual dollar and not points, which I got wrong on the cast. And because of that, uh, the Cardsphere subreddit basically came over and told us how wrong we were. And I got into a couple discussion points with Tom Reese, and he, I'm like, you guys aren't a business yet. Not knowing that literally the day or two days before we recorded the cast, they had become a business because I had only checked the week before. Uh, so they had fixed that. And they're working on other stuff, even though their temporary site that's online, even though it's not open to actually trade cards on yet, I'm not a fan of the format. Uh, he countered with Reddit and Craigslist. Both don't have interactive UIs where it's like not very flashy and you can get stuff done, but Reddit and Craigslist aren't used to trade cards on. So I'm not quite sure how this bare bones approach will work. Uh, anyway, the cards here people demanded that we make some sort of apology on the cast because I got it wrong and no one else on the cast did or they didn't have enough information. So that's it. But I'm still not using your site because I'm not going to put my cards into another trading platform. Uh, I'd rather just deal with vendors face to face or people I trust and not go through this whole thing again, just like Puka Trade. Even though the sites are different, it, it's just not worth my time at this point. Well, I will highlight here as somebody on the uh, kind of on the outside of this and who also had the luxury of not having been involved in that shit show of a conversation last week that uh, the appeal for of Puka Trade and Puka Trade type sites for you is significantly lower than someone like me. Because, I mean, you run a store, so you buy a bazillion cars and anything, anything you need probably shows up on your buyer map. And what doesn't, you can go pick up pretty easily. But for people like me, like who don't have that option, like a site like that that's functioning that like really works and there's a lot of movement on is very useful. So I'm not saying I'm going to use it or I'm not. I don't know. I'll have to see how it plays out, but I'm not writing it off yet. Yeah. So one of my arguments is like you need a lot of people for that to work because even if the currency is backed by the dollar, the argument they made is if a card's not moving, you can offer like half price, which is something Puka Trade has not done, or you can offer more. But so it's sort of a self-correcting economy. Um, but if you don't even have right now, they have 400 people on their subreddit. That is not enough to facilitate thousands and thousands of singles that are that people need like day to day. And even the casual players, you know, if you need two one EDH deck, that's 100 cards. And if you're only working with 400 other people, there's a chance that if they're at a, sem- a similar status as you and it's not a vendor, then you're never going to get that card online. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, the nice thing is that you can basically just use both of them, right? Uh, use both of... But, like, you could be on... You can put in listing your cards on both Puka and... But at Card Sphere, and then, you know, see... Obviously, the points don't transfer, but hopefully you can find a buyer somewhere. I mean, Puka Trade's trying to rebound. The amount of trades have gone up, but I don't, I'm... As a vendor or someone even in MTG Finance, I would not recommend using Puka Trade ever again. That's That's a bit severe. Ever again? Yeah, ever again. And that's coming from someone who traded over a million or what is it, over $10,000 in under a year on Puka Trade. Why ever again? It's just too much work. 
uh, the point system is not favorable anymore. Everyone is hitting the same cards. And with the point bonuses, it's just not worth my time to manually input point bonuses and set limits on cards if they get bought out or spike. Like, I'm not going to be the guy that says, I don't want to pay more than 500 points on this card, and I have to do it for each one of my cards in case it gets bought out on TCG and their algorithm shifts to accept that. Cards here is trying to do something better than Puka Trade there, and I appreciate them for that. I just don't want to get involved with that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I have no problem with that. But again, I have to highlight that your use of that platform, the value you get out of that platform is very different than our average listener. So right. like, even if our listener doesn't want to use Puka Trade today, which is you know understandable at least, uh, I could see a world where I return to it. If they manage to pull a ton of players back, I'd do it. I still need EDH staples, and I don't want to pay for them. Do you think that Puka Trade is able, will ever be able to get back on its feet again like it used to be? Could it? Sure. Will it? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what hoops they... I do not know what hoops they have to jump through to pull people back in. Ed, as someone who's definitely a higher level vendor than I am and like actually does this for a living, would you, did you use Puka Trade and discards for your interest you at all with its money-backed system. And to uh, preface this, they if you try to cash out your point, your quote-unquote points, they're not points. Don't crucify me for don't crucify me for this again. Cards here, uh, cards here takes a ten percent uh, fee when you cash out, so you're getting ninety percent theoretically of what your card's worth in cash. Which it beats TCG player, by the way. Yeah, which totally beats TCG. So um, I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk too much about Puka Trade. Um, I, I, I think we've kind of touched on that enough. I think like four or five of us bashing on Puka Trade was enough for one week. Um, I think I mentioned last week that at one point in my life I did use Puka Trade. It's not like Jeremy said. It's probably not something that I would go back to. I think it was. It was. People were on board because it was more of the novelty at the time that people had this platform to trade on. Um, they kind of took advantage of some of the former sites like Magic Online Traders kind of falling by the wayside. That used to be a very popular platform for people to trade on. Um, that's obviously no longer a thing. And now, and they were kind of doing it before Facebook came along. That made it very easy for all types of players, you know, from like Travis, uh, who does the kind of casual buying collections, flipping cards, um, all the way up to someone like me who works with the stores and we have avenues to just dump access product, uh, do quick flips after GPs. Um, Puka Trade was kind of there to take advantage of that first, and that was the type of thing that I think got a lot of people on board. And now I think the Puka Trade model is a little bit outdated. And realistically, I think Card Sphere is interesting. Um, I brief, I talked uh, briefly with Tom. Um, I, I, I asked to reach out to him and actually have a conversation with him about these various things. Um, I was unfortunately in Vancouver all weekend. He did message me back. I haven't had a chance to actually talk to him yet, which is something I, I'm actually intrigued by. Uh, but just looking through their weekly reports and uh, a lot of the threads on the subreddit, I'm much more intrigued by Cardsphere, mainly because being backed by the dollar is such a huge jump from just trading with arbitrary points. Um, because there's a lot, there's a lot more confidence in in something that's backed by U.S. dollar. Because in theory, if people are looking to cash out, that means that there's no confidence in the points or whatever currency it is. And if there's no confidence, then it's the it, it's card sphere that takes the hit. It's not on the players. If I had Puka points from a year plus ago, right when they were selling for seventy cents, now you can buy them online for thirty to probably about thirty eight cents. 
right? Like, like Puka Trade doesn't take the hit from that. We're the ones who take the hit from that. Whereas if the same scenario happened in Cardsphere and we're allowed to cash out anytime, Cardsphere investors, those are people that take the hit. And because they're willing to take on that liability, I'm much more interested in in investing or committing to it in cards. Um, and this apply this would apply to everyone. It doesn't matter how big or small you are, right? You still have that same option of cashing out at 90%, which is incredibly appealing to me. And obviously they're starting small, like 400 users on the Reddit, um, way too small, but it really doesn't take very many power users to get, to get the initial set of people interested in it. And then you kind of start having the snowball effect um, that, the, the, that, that small type of business would want to see. And that's really how you attract people on board. And realistically, I think bridging the gap between just arbitrary points and then now having arbitrary points plus uh, currency backed by it is kind of the next step that gives Cardsphere, like a, in my mind, a very, very big advantage over Puka Trade. And one of the things that uh, if you're interested in this uh, and you're a listener, uh, this could potentially be the best gold mine you've ever seen for both vendors and casual MTG finance people. You know, this is an unheard of level of uh, returns, especially if you're one of the first people in the system, uh, which is where Puka Trade was pretty profitable for me. And I don't know when Ed started, but for me, it was right after 2013, like right after they had done the the beta launch or whatever it was. When you say it's really good for people who are new to the system, what is the reasoning behind that? Like you say first to the system, is there some sort of uh, test advantage that early adopters have or is there something else going on? Uh, one of the advantages of early adopters, so let's say Ed and Kerwan, Kerwan's as a whole, not necessarily Ed. Let's say Ed uses Kerwan's inventory and he's able to push out this inventory to people who, and he's like the first real vendor that has every card that he can send out he can send out every single card that he wants to every other 400 people and he'll be the only one competing to send out those cards. So it's more about just being one of the only people operating in the market rather than like being having received some bonus for having been an early signer up. Right. Yeah. That's the thing is that's when Puka trade used to be good for me as well. When, you know, people wanted these like 60, 70% spread cards. So for Ed, he can pay like, let's say $3 on a card that's, you know, doesn't sell very well, something from let's say portal or portal three kingdoms, something, you know what I'm talking about, Ed, like where it's that random portal three kingdoms card that has a huge, like a common that's worth like seven bucks and you're paying like $2 on it, which is channel bias. Well, Ed can take that card and get $7 worth of whatever currency we're going to be using on card sphere. And after they take that percentage, he's basically uh, tripled his money up. And because he's the only one with that card in the early adaptation of that system, he doesn't have to compete with, say, Channel Fireball, even though they're not going to, they're probably not going to use it. Uh, let's say uh, Full Grip Games, which is Jameson's group. So if Ed's the only one doing this, he now can afford to start changing what he's buying at GPs. And he can maybe put on his board random low spread stuff, just like what Hyria does, where, you know, why are you paying this much? Oh, because you have another market elsewhere. You know, Hyria's market is moving all that stuff back to Japan for the most part. And Ed's market is now using cards here because he's the only real vendor on there. And he's able to pay for booth fees and all this other stuff through being the first one there and sending all this stuff out. The, uh, the repeating lesson of our show week in and week out is buy cards at buy list. <laughs> that, is, that is the most valuable piece of information that we give you every week is buy cards at buy list prices. And you know, you look at uh, you look at uh, what Travis's co-host did on the other podcast, 
that Travis wasn't a part of, oddly enough. And one of the things he introduced was that system where, you know, shops don't have any any stake in the game. You know, Dan Bach comes in, he drops a four of each card or however many of each card of the shop of every card ever printed. And when a customer comes in, you will always have that card to sell to them. And you don't have to buy collections with your own capital. So you don't get tied up in missing maybe a rent payment or paying your employees. And that's where Bach expanded to, you know, the million shops he operates out of now because he was the first one to do that with proprietary software. And because he was the first of the game, it helped him grow to where he is now, where you can you can make not high end out of literal black lotuses on a Facebook group and spell it out because you're just so far ahead of everyone else. And if Ed or another vendor who has the time and the resources invests in a card sphere like this and they're the first ones in, the amount of money they're going to make is insane. And it works the same for those high school, college student backpack grinders where you know you're competing with everyone and trying to undercut on tcg and the next thing you know after fees you're not making above what say card kingdom's paying on their buy list and you know now you're a backpack grinder gaining a lot of rep because you can afford to spend a little more money each week because you're making an insane margin using card sphere i gotta say this if this is how it all plays out it's pretty unreal if i can buy specs like retract at a quarter and then ship them for you know 1500 points and then cash that out at 10 percent. like that would be phenomenal it'd be so easy to just do that like it it, it makes my position as somebody who sells i don't know like averages maybe one tcg sale a day it would be great for me and you know like that's something that's going to interest people if the word gets out there and you know for you that's perfect because you can choose exactly when you're going to send cards out you know like rough day going on vacation you didn't accidentally leave your storefront up you know you can choose when you're sending out these cards and other people can't undercut you on tcg either because i undercut you on chromatical entrance as a, as a specific example on tcg yeah, you're you and doug both did it you guys are jerks it's he undercut me on something else too <laughs> yeah like he i know who i am <laughs> I was not necessarily one of the first people to discover arbitrage from Japan to the US, but um, I would argue I was one of the first people to write an article about the Haruya Biolist arbitrage, which Sig then wrote also about, and then that game was up. So yeah, it's all about first. I don't know why you two wrote about that. That was so dumb. <laughs> at, that, at that point, I had grown big enough where I wasn't really backpack grinding anymore. Yeah, screw the rest of us that were still enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, like, that's why it doesn't really apply to me. Um, I just simply don't have time to deal with Card Hoarder. And I'm, as I was saying before the cast, I'm so far behind on my own inventory uh, for the brick and mortar because I have other stuff to deal with, like going to law school, that it's just not in the cards for me right now. Like, I just want to worry about stocking my LGS and not necessarily trying to make the biggest profit and keeping my local player base happy and then worrying more about school and getting out of Magic. Because as we all know, Magic is ruined forever. I'm glad we finally came full circle to that one. Yeah, no problem. Anything that you want to add, Jim? Um, not really. Um, like, I'm glad to see the system is different than I what I was expecting, but I'm not sure that I'm necessarily going to be in the market to do that. It really depends on how easy it is to send cards, like how easy it is to find people to buy them, and then what the difference is between TCG player and... Um, card sphere i suppose because there's there's obviously a fee that you pay for selling cards on tcg player but if it's less money than 
or if card steer is less money, then obviously that makes it more enticing to do that. Because at this point, I don't really want more cards so much as I just want to get rid of the ones that I have. It's also nice to have an opportunity to be able to ship like one or two ofs type of thing. Something else that uh, Doug would have been good to still have on this cast before he got stolen away or willingly joined, whichever whichever side of the coin you guys want. Um, you know, he had a bunch of friends that worked for TCG, and TCG has essentially been a monopoly as far as besides eBay um, on the marketplace for a long time. We've had like two other competitors card shark and i forgot the other one so whatever because card shark did free oh mtg park which was started under quiet speculation where they said zero fees you just go through us because we want to grow the site and that didn't work out at all um you know if card sphere can manage to grab even five percent of what tcg's volume is i mean that's an insane amount of money yeah there really isn't anything else in the market for you know, someone like me who sells an average of once a day, like where else do I go? There's not, not any great options. I think one of the hardest things in magic right now um, <clears throat> is actually finding what market you want to tap into. Um, it used to be, I shouldn't say easier, but you had more options available when there were less options, like as, in, as counterintuitive as that sounds, but three years ago when we were looking at what, how did people actually move magic cards around? Like you could trade online. There was like platforms to trade online, like uh, magic uh, online trading league model, um, or you're buying and you're trading at your local game store, or you're going to one of the much more infrequent grand prix that, uh, that happened. Um, but once it started becoming more globalized as it were, once we started seeing things like TCG player, uh, TCG player come along, more grand prix come along, it became harder and harder to distinctly draw a line about what market am I actually engaging in. And now, like, you go to a Grand Prix, you see people from Europe, you see people from Asia, you see people from Japan, uh, all over the U.S. who are willing to make this trip to try and, you know, grind out these dollars because they think they can take advantage of the market. It's just becoming so hard to do that now. So, and I think Cardsphere, whether or not successful, I think <clears throat> trying to add something new, something that's different, is I think one of the ways that magic is left to go in the future because honestly at this point I don't know how, like how much more money there is to be made in magic mainly just because everything is becoming so integrated it used to be you could take advantage you know before like Jeremy and Sig wrote articles about like international arbitrage it's just very easy to go uh, to other countries and take advantage of their currency and then take advantage of like the major differences in their economy and now the currency itself has balanced itself, itself out. It's almost one-to-one -one between the yen, the dollar, the euro, and the pound. And the markets more have more or less corrected because more and more people have just jumped on board. Um, so something like Cardsphere, you know, if it if it fights, if it, it's a way to not necessarily kill a TCG player, but fight against it, and something else we can take advantage of, then maybe that's like the direction that Magic has to go in order for actual monetary advantages to be made. And you look at people who were ahead of the game, I mean, talking about arbitrage and referring back to Dan Bach when uh, Pro Tour Japan or whatever in J Pro Tour Kyoto, Pro Tour Tokyo, wherever that Pro Tour in Japan was, he brought a bunch of those lands where he famously played only lands in that Pro Tour. And the lands hadn't even been printed in Japan yet, so he was able to fetch an obscene amount of uh, money for these lands that were only available in the U.S. just flying them over. I think those were the 
a- APAC lands at the I don't I don't I would never really followed along that closely to old MTG finance. So um, it's just like like promo basic lands, is that what you're saying? Yeah, he literally played sixty islands in the Pro Tour for one round so that he could get his T shirt. It's a real famous Dan Box story among the finance world. It's really hard on a side note to learn about all the old finance stuff because there's very little documentation about it. Or I don't you know, I don't even know where to go look for a lot of that stuff. I'm sure there's some probably some pretty interesting stories out there. Hey, but I mean, at this point, they're just like all old wives' tales. Like, you have to go find the person that was there at the time to tell you the story about the thing that happened. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, and at the same time, like Ed said, uh, we had Paul Fudo of MTG Deals and Michael Caffrey of Tales of Adventure on, and Mike freely admitted he had no idea if he was going to make or lose money this year until the end of the year, which is insane coming from a vendor to just flat up say that. Like, hey, yeah, I'm spending this much money every week, and I spent a hundred thousand dollars on boost for the year, and I don't know if I'll come out ahead. So, was he saying he didn't know for 2016 or 2017? Either. Oh, so he still didn't wait. He still didn't know. We had him on the first or second week of January, so he was probably still working on taxes at that point. Damn. Yeah. Were you not on that cast? Uh, I think I was, but I can barely remember what happened yesterday, much less conversations from a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and then you have people like uh, Thomas Dodd, who in 2015 said, you know, 2014 maybe, said, you know, casual EDH, that's the way I want to go, bulkers. You know, literally dug just with a bigger pocketbook. And, you know, two years later, all this EDH stuff is spiking. And, you know, last year Thomas had said, you know, I'm done. I'm done with the GPs. Pokemon's where it's at. And, And then he got into Pokemon right before Pokemon Go came out. And it's been working out really well for that new brick and mortar he opened. Uh, uh, so- casual EDH stuff has been the best thing for armchair speculators at this point. Modern has... Modern's not done. Like You still have retract and stuff like that that move. And you could see some of the stuff from the new expertise deck move. Um, but for the average guy who's trying to flip a couple cards here and there, EDH is definitely the most profitable... Uh, market because like Abzan and Jund and um, you know Nahiri control all those types of decks in modern like just aren't they are kind of settled. There's not a lot of price volatility, but people are still building commander, still building commander decks, and those four color commanders did a lot. Yeah, but two years ago, no one would have talked about EDH. I mean, that's when Jason Alt really started shifting into finance. Uh, stuff like that like this was not common knowledge and you see these people getting back to the theme of people who are ahead of the game which may be card sphere may be able to card up a lu- carve up a lucrative opportunity there and get their well, slice of the pie i would argue part of that is that two years ago modern was still reasonably fresh and exciting right like like, like modern at this point is is settled partly because how long it's been but the reason it was so good two or three years ago wasn't because nobody cared about it it was like the format was still being explored I mean, part of the problem, like I guess, with the modern prices at this point is also there's not a lot of, there's not the de facto high, um, high viewership event that really is going to push new decks and new prices. Um, the modern pro tour doesn't exist anymore, and the last like time we saw a lot of big swinging changes was with pro tour or the Gatewatch, which was the last modern pro tour. Some of that had to do with the fact that like the modern meta game got shaken up a lot by the colorless Eldrazi deck, but you know, I've been doing some research for articles I've been writing, and basically, um, a lot of what I'm coming down to for the you know the upcoming Modern Master set was 
how expensive was this card before Pro Tour Oath of the Gatewatch? Because it really depends on when they decide to lock everything in. If they locked in all the cards that they were printing for price reasons before Oath of the Gatewatch, or Pro Tour Oath of the Gatewatch, then we might be very disappointed because a lot of cards spiked right afterwards. Um, like Cavender Souls is an example. It was like, you know, $30 or $20 around, you know, before that, but it went up to 40 and 50 because Eldrazi cost a ton of mana and having the honor counterable is kind of a big deal and also makes colorless. Mana. Like a lot of things happened and, and Cavender Souls got a lot more popular very quickly. Quickly. That was a long time ago though, right? Or, I mean, I feel like it would have, they would have had time to react after that. Most likely. You say that, but like we don't that. really know what their timetable is for this kind of stuff. Like, they just revealed. They said something recently that I did a double take because of how short it meant their timeline was, but I don't remember what it was they said. I think it was Stodd, but I don't know. Well, what are we talking about? How I, how how short the amount of time is before the set is done and it comes out? Uh, two years. Yeah, but they said something recently that really made it sound like there was a much shorter lead time than that. As far as I'm aware, they start printing the set between a year and six months ahead of time. And then at six months, it's like ready to be shipped out to distributors, wherever that one. And um, yeah, I thought it was two years. I guess so, I, all I have is that I remember, I think I remember somebody saying something, so that's hardly proof of much. Yeah, so I, I know because I've talked to some of the artists that work on magic stuff that um, like... I don't know how much, like, what part of the process the art comes in. I assume it's towards the end of the thing, uh, at the end of creating the set, because when you need new art for a card, you need to know what the card does first, ideally to, like, show that in the art. But apparently some of the, some or most or all of the Amon Ket art was started somewhere around August of last year, which is about a year before the set comes out. So I don't know how many months it is that they work on that art for that kind of stuff, but... It doesn't seem unreasonable to say that maybe sets are are close to being done almost two years in advance. Which, like I said, it's been almost it's it's been a little bit over a year since Pro Tour Oath of the Gatewatch, since that was the first Pro Tour of last year. Keep in mind, though, that we're talking about a reprint set, so they could theoretically have a much shorter lead time because they don't have to design cards for that. For sure, for sure, and but I don't we don't know how condensed the schedule is for an all reprint set either because right. Realistically, they're just doing some balancing for draft, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, but and they also don't have to commission art, so there's not that pressure to get the set done early. I mean, that really, is not how, true. Why there, there's that? new art in this set? Well, I mean, they can take the cards that they can take a handful of cards that they know they want, commission art for those, and then build the rest of the set around it. You know, you really should have been at GP Minneapolis because Mike Lineman got every artist at a booth in the same bar for an entire night, and it was like a VIP thing, but they answered like to the limits of their contracts what they could, and it was one of the most enlightening discussions I've ever had with Magic people uh, next to me walking by GP Atlanta with Chris Rush and some other artists sitting there just talking away with people. That was probably cool. I know I know a magic artist. Uh, I have to pester him. I, I haven't really made a point of going to bring him out ask any questions, but I suppose I should chat with him one of these days. Yeah, like I mean, Victor Adame is like really outgoing, but it was uh, Victor Adame, Jeff Miracola, um, RK Post. Oh, God, there are two more, and I can't remember them. So the people that you see at like, every Grand Prix? 
Steve Not Prescott, I want to say, and Chris Ron were the other two. It was it was really sure. interesting, and like they're all just talking about like uh, how long it takes for them to get a piece, like what the art director wants. It was like really, and like they obviously at the time couldn't tell us about Oath of the Gatewatch and stuff and the Expedition Lands, but just like hearing their timetables and like uh, the market rate versus like you know back then they didn't have control over the rights of their artwork, so they couldn't make money selling playmats of their artwork. Now they can obviously, so that's changed in over a year. But it's just real interesting to see what those guys have to say. And that's why you should go to Grand Prix besides for trading for cards and playing is because you can learn a lot of stuff from community people. I am going the art suite. <laughs> I'm going to Vegas and I intend to play exactly one magic event. And even that's only just because I feel like I should play at least one if I'm going to go. Is it the Legacy GP? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's the modern one. Oh, gross. Gross. Ew. Gross. Ew. Yeah. I'll be watching over the booths and discuss as Sig tries to sell his last nickel. So, yep, that's mm -hmm. my plan. You can't make joke like jokes like that anymore. Let's well, do I, let's do some viewer questions and then wrap this up real quick. All right, Jim, do you want to start with a viewer question? Nope, but I'll have them open. You don't have a viewer question. All right, let me pull them up real quick. Ed, if you want to drop a nugget of wisdom while I look these up, can I give a shout out real quick? Uh, I want to shout out Chris Rallis because his Liliana art for the new set is fantastic, and it reminds me of like a way cooler looking Tassiker. Wizards actually just posted the full art for that like minutes ago. Oh yeah, I know. I just retweeted it. it, but I had only seen the small version of it, and then I like now I think it's like way more cool. Like it's a very nice ode to the Tassiker art with the zombie that has the head full, the head plate with the fruit on it. I see mummies. Looks like we're getting mummies in this set. I mean, those are really just zombies with clothes. I All think. Right. We got a breaking bulk pick from a viewer, which I'm sure Doug would love if he was still on this cast, so thanks for that. I think you sent this to the wrong cast. <laughs> uh, it's a green uncommon from New Phyrexia. That's all I'm giving you, and it is not uh, Triumph not of the Hordes. It's Noxious Revival. Correct. Jim's real easy at this. Uh, apparently those are worth something now. I'm not sure why yeah. that's a question, but thank you for that tidbit. <laughs> uh, they're they're like kind of obnoxious to find, and they're in the eggs deck or the Cheerios deck. See, I appreciate that pun, Jim. I know it yeah. was intended. What? You said they were obnoxious. Yeah, it's obnoxious revival. Whatever. Okay. If you're not going to give that to me, I see how it is. I mean, that's just how I treat you. Yep. This is this is a love-hate, love-hate relationship. <laughs> um, there was, like, zero viewer questions this week. Oh. Besides that, that, like, I actually want to answer. Yeah. All right, so <laughs> let's, do, let's, do, let's do a prediction. What five mythics that are not already spoiled do you think are going to be in Modern Masters 2017? Not Liliana. I mean, I guess, or you could say, no, just to pick pick five that you think are going to be in the set. God damn it. I'm going to go with Damri Rod, Gristlebrand. Uh, I, I literally guess, just I said you can't pick the ones that have already yeah, been yeah. spoiled. You That's the joke. Piece of shit. Um, Ed, you want to start? I'll go last. Uh, 
I think we'll see some uh, EDH type mythics um, in there. Uh, like we obviously can't have like just fifteen hyper competitive modern staples in there. Uh, there has to be some balance of cards that are unnecessarily expensive. Um, that would be kind of a boon for them to reprint that because it doesn't really cost them anything to do it here. Um, I think Vornclix is a good one. That'll probably be one of the green mythics. Uh, the a red one. Can't think of a red one. I can't think of a red card. Mm, I think through the breach. Urbrask. Uh, Koth and through uh, Urbrask unlikely. Urbrask is pretty cheap. Koth didn't really get expensive until this year, and it was already printed in a dual deck. Uh, through the breach is one of the more interesting ones. I think that's always one been one of those cards that's kind of been on the fringes, and it just started to become more expensive this year. Uh, Black is likely taken care of in Liliana and uh, Gristlebrand. Blue Snapcaster Mage for the other one. I kind of thought like maybe Tamio would kind of get the nod there since it was printed Abyssin Restored, which was kind of post uh, uh, the post Mar Masters two uh, white. I think we'll see Abyssin uh, Angel of Hope. Uh, this is a big casual card. It's white. It's flashy. It's expensive. Uh, Multicolor, we'll probably see Voice, uh, Cabin of Souls. I don't think it will be a Mythic. I don't think it makes sense for it to be Mythic. Um, <clears throat> but do you think that Snapcaster Mage is going to be a Mythic? I think Snapcaster Mage is going to be a Mythic. I think it, it breaks one of those rules where it's not particularly to, fun to play with or against. It's one of those like very, very secretly powerful cards in Limited. Um, and they probably just don't want to straight up tank the price, especially considering how much damage... Uh, the RPTQ promo already did to the price of Snapcaster Mage. All right, and one artifact or uh, colorless well, card or land. Uh, I think I think Batter Skull might see a reprint as a mythic, maybe not, but I think it's too powerful or rare to see plain limited. So Batter Skull might be my pick for mythic. All right, Travis, you want to go next? Uh. What am I supposed to do? Pick five things that I think are going to get reprinted. I'm a big five fan minutes. of that counter on your on your uh, on your screen there, Travis. Yeah, you got us up there pretty quick, and then you stopped. What were you saying, Jim? Five mythics. Five mythics that you think are going to be in the set that are not obviously the ones that are the two that are already spoiled. Through the breach, Linvala. Uh, Vornclax, maybe. Um, I'm not sure. What artifact would it be? Better Skull's possible. Jason Stoneforge, of course. You know, I'm not totally against Jace being reprinted, but they usually only do two Planeswalkers in a Master set, and we've already got Domri, so if you're counting on Liliana also being the second one, they're probably not going to get another Planeswalker. Uh, no, they should not print that card. Or they should not make that card. They should not put that card in modern. Let me rephrase that. It should be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. All right. So the five that I have are Past in Flames, Crater Hoof Behemoth, uh, Archangel of Thune. Uh, that was M15. Is it? I think it's M14. Idiot. No, I'm pretty sure oh, it's Archangel M14. Fun. Yeah, get out of here. Fun, idioter. I there's there's a choice F word that I'd use, but also screw you. 
Um, and then my, I think the blue ones could be the most interesting. I think, I think we could get like ancestral vision at mythic or bribery. I think those are the two that would be most likely at mythic. And then for a artifact, I want to pick worm coil engine. I think that that card could just slide in there pretty easily. It's not terribly expensive and it's a card that people would want to open. So one of the interesting things to note is that I think we're all working off the assumption that Gristlebrand is going to be a mythic. Like, I, it is possible for it to be an, a rare, right? Like, on the M15, there is Noble Hierarch on the front of the packs. And it's not like Gristlebrand is so high impact in draft that it would be un, out of the realm possibility for it to be a rare. Well, we already have that so, Angel but, rare. Yeah, Stoic Angel is a rare, and they're not likely to put two rares on the booster packs. I think I think you're you are really stretching if you're talking about how many rares they're going to put on the rare art they're going to put on the booster pack. That said, I would be very surprised to see Russell Brand at rare. I mean, it's just such a banner iconic card. It almost feels like you're taking some of the mystique of the card away when you do that. And I don't think there are any been any mythics that have been downgraded to rare in a master set yet that I can remember. Oh no! Uh, Comet Storm. Uh, I have Ugin. I lied. That's not true. I have Ugin was a mythic and then got downgraded to a rare. So then, yeah, I guess I guess it could happen, but that seems unlikely. Mind if I try Gander at some picks? Yes, I do. Please don't. Uh, All please right. Do. Well, in that case, I got. Uh, what should I pick? Um, you could pick the same ones that people already picked if you want. Yeah, but if I try some picks, sure, go ahead. I got uh, Liliana the Veil uh, uh, at Mythic and Damnation at Mythic. I have Engineered Explosives at Mythic. I have uh, Mendelian Click at Mythic again. I have. Uh, do I want to say that I'm gonna? I'm gonna. Yeah, why not? I got Goblin Guide at Rare, which will lead into Pick of the Week. I oh, think we get Goblin Guide at Rare. We're not yeah, talking want, about rares. I want to update my list. My list is going to be Liliana at Mythic, Gristlebrand at Mythic, Goryeo's Vengeance at Mythic, Damnation at Mythic, Nakana Revenant at Mythic, Sheldred at Mythic. Locking those in. Okay. Um, so, so 10 black Mythic rares. This is like Torment and Mercer 2. And then I got, I got uh, Ancestral Visions at Mythic and Stormcrow at Mythic. So those are my picks. Oh, it's a good list. It's a good list. Yeah, we only provide the highest quality content. All right, you guys I ready? I don't think that last one's going to fly, Jeremy. Uh, that last one does fly. There's no need to... Uh, shit, I messed up my pun. No! Yeah, you did. He got you so bad. <laughs> well, just like a just like Gristlebrand versus a banana peel, I guess I had a tragic slip. You guys ready to get in the pick of the week? I guess so. All right. Um, I'm going to go first so that Jim doesn't steal this. Banking on the back of Goblin Guide as a reprint in the set, because if not, Wizards, what the hell are you doing? I'm going to go with Idon of the Great Revel at 6 bucks. This card's finally plateaued, and I only see it going up from here. I think it hits $10 by the end of the year. And yes, I'm aware that Hari basically was paying an obscene amount of money for like six months on this card, but I think this card's going to be an easy moneymaker once Goblin Guy gets reprinted in the set. So that's my plan. I'll go next. Uh, in keeping with the trend of standard cards that I've constantly picked, I actually don't have a Mythic today. I have a Rare. Um, 
Traverse to Unwald. I think uh, I saw plenty of plays weekend in the Death Shadow aggro decks in uh, Vancouver. Uh, Black Green Delirium is constantly a major player in standard. Um, we can speculate on whether or not anything will happen with the uh, bands coming up, but it's one of those cards where it has a very, very good power level, um, especially if there are decks that can fuel it, which is not really that hard to do in today's day and age. Um, and we do have a few more months of it. Um, we haven't seen kind of the deck take off yet. It's one been one of those things that's on people's radar, but it seems like Black, Black Green Delirium is always going to be a good audible type deck, a level zero deck um, that'll exist. Uh, Amaket notwithstanding, we'll kind of see how that shapes out. Um, it's, just, it's just one of those things. It's cheap to acquire. Any deck that plays it will see it played as a four of. Um, it's kind of bottomed out again after its high post Eldritch Moon when Black Green Delirium really took off. So this might kind of be the second wind um, if it does trend up, especially if the Black Green Delirium deck and uh, <clears throat> Death Shadow decks do kind of become more of a mainstay in their respective formats. All right, my pick of the week is going to be Endbringer. Uh, a lot of the cards that are the Eldrazi Tron deck are pretty inexpensive outside of the Cavern of Souls, the Chalice of the Void, like a bunch of cards that just could get reprinted pretty easily, and um, those are like less than a dollar. They're like 30 cents or something. And uh, if it spikes, then I can like put my name on the leaderboard or something because it'll be like $2, and that's like a big increase in percentage. I already that's got you with Wars Toll, buddy. You are yeah. lacking in the pick department. That's that's because you said it and people literally went and bought it out. That's just what happened there. Am I the next Jason Alt because I'm wearing a Brainstorm Brewery shirt? Oh god, that means I have to be an alcoholic stay-at-home dad. Yeah, you have to have a ch child first that is cuter than you are. That's you'd pretty to, you'd impossible. Have first. I'd have to what first? Mate. Yeah, no, I'd rather just stay in the basement for the rest of my life. That's the plan. Uh, well, I am going to uh, to swing for the fences here. Um, I can't give you a specific card because, honestly, I didn't look at them yet. But given at the artwork uh, that we're looking at for Amonkhet, it looks like there are snakes, um, which could bring a return of tribal snakes. They do kind of fit into the Egyptian theme. So going back to the snakes of Kamigawa, most of which haven't been reprinted, uh, I would poke through there because a lot of those were all legendary there was a lot of snake matters themes um so there i'm gonna it's a blanket roughly snake tribal could have some stuff from kamigawa really move so sashiro and sosuke i guess there's a couple more right like those are the best common. ones probably they might be but there's uncommon well, so sosuke is an uncommon but yeah those are the the two better ones is sashiro and sosuke i guess you could do sachi too if you just want to get all of them i don't remember yeah. anything past that yeah, I mean, again, I didn't look, but keep an eye out in that realm. I bought them in a collection like a couple months ago, so I have them all in a pile somewhere. Plus, like, if we get a warrior snake theme or something, where, like, uh, they take down the flying gods, or whatever that Egyptian myth is, where those snakes kill yeah, the... Mute him. I don't have a mute button. I don't have a mute button. Mute him. <laughs> Does no one else take from a mile key? away? From a mile away, we can see it coming. I mean, I've taken a bunch of mythology. All I'm saying is snakes can take down gods with a boa arrow. So oh, that was way worse than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, you guys want to do any shout outs before we get out of here? 
I'm going to shout out to Jeremy. I'm shouting out loud at you. You should try elevating your, your voice before you do that. Anyone else? Uh, I want to shout out the guy on Twitter that I muted because his argument didn't make any sense. Strong. I know. There's only two people on my mute list now. Congratulations. Uh, no shout-outs today. Oh, man, that travel must have been bad on you. Um, I'm going to give a shout-out to the Spike Feed podcast, who, like, a lot of people call me Zemmet this weekend at the tournament, and I didn't say hi to any of them back because I was running around with that chicken, like, my head cut off because of the amount of buys and stuff I was doing with his TO. Uh, they literally recorded a podcast outside of the shop in the parking lot in their car, which is a little crazy. And shout out to all the people that drove five or more hours to this tournament. And I'm, I think the record for the next one is already going to be seven hours for the one, Lotus tournament. Uh, speaking of which we have a legacy tournament for a black Lotus. So if you want to meet me and you like legacy, you should stop by. So that's the plan. Uh, thanks for watching cartel aristocrats cast number 43. As always, we appreciate any feedback uh, and remember don't invest in card sphere. Bye.